All right, so um, the title of this talk includes the words, as you can see, equi equitable mathematics classrooms. You won't hear me using the word equity a lot today um, or referring to particular groups of kids. And that's because I want to present um, a phenomenon which I'll illustrate, in fact, by this book. So this book I wrote for teachers and for parents that Linda mentioned, this is the, math, um, this is the US version, what's math got to do it, with it. In the UK, it had a different title, The Elephant in the Classroom. And I argued in that book, and in both books, that the reason that we have um, so many problems in the US and the UK is that there's really a big elephant standing in every math classroom. And you know the expression, the elephant in the room, which refers to an idea that's out there that people don't want to talk about, but it's very strong. And really the big elephant that's standing in most math classrooms is the idea that math, only some people can be good at math. So kids believe that, parents believe that, teachers believe it. And it's a very damaging myth that causes a lot of uh, problems. Ever since I published that book, people keep sending me photos of elephants in classrooms. I, <laughs> I don't know why, but anyway. So um, how bad is the problem? I want to start with some data that I saw recently and I've been sharing because I find it really shocking. And um, it's this. Nearly about half of college students currently in the U.S. are in two-year colleges 70% of those students are placed into remedial math classes. So that means they're repeating the high school math classes they took before. And even worse, only one in 10 of those students complete the courses. For the rest of them, that's the end of the road for college. They leave college, and math is the reason for it. So that's one of the roles math plays in our society. But I don't want you to, to think it's just an issue for low-achieving students. It's not. And in fact, I could introduce you to the class of freshmen I taught at Stanford last quarter, math-traumatized um, freshmen here. So we know the problem is very wide. And just to illustrate that, I'm going to introduce you to somebody from the UK, actually, who's a scientist. So this is Vivian Parry. She's a, a top scientist, very, very uh, successful. She's vice chair of council for University College London, member of the Medical Research Council, presents on BBC TV. And I'm going to play a bit of Vivian introducing me um, in a talk, because when I, I got to know uh, Vivian, I realized that she was terrified of math. And this is Vivian introducing me at the Royal Institution, another of our royal societies. In fact, that's a picture of the Royal Institution in London. That's not a picture of people queuing for my talk, but <laughs> <laughs> that is the Royal Institution. Okay, I have been having problems with this file. All right, um, you just have to excuse me a moment. I want to go into my other... Um, files, because that is not going to play. Mm, sorry about this. Um, hmm. Does that, can anyone see Vivian Parry written on that? No, no. I don't know. This happened earlier. Um, okay, let's play it from this. I think I'm here chairing this is because um, I did a program for Radio 4 about uh, dyscalculia and had myself tested and I was shamingly bad at maths and a couple of oh, two or three weeks ago Lenny Henry and I did a program together where we talked about our awful awful maths experiences at schools 
Uh, and when I uh, did this program, I said that I was reduced to sobbing in the corner because Mrs. Glass, my maths teacher, made me stand there because I couldn't do my seven times table. And do you know, five women called the BBC Action Line and said, was it Mrs. Glass of Rooksbury Park? <laughs> <clears throat> and do you know, ladies and gentlemen, it surely was. And ever since then, one of the things that uh, we uh, were both saying uh, was that we always thought that people who could do maths were clever. So that if you couldn't do maths, it must mean that you weren't clever. And both Lenny Henry and I had this secret shape, well not so much secret, um, all our lives about being bad at maths. And I was always afraid that Mrs. Glass would jump out when I was at the BBC, tap me on the shoulder and say, that's it, Parry, you've had your lot. We've discovered you. So uh, maths really uh, has an enormous effect uh, on children's lives and it can, bad teaching can blight their lives. So I am delighted to introduce Professor Jo Bowen. Oh, now we're going to John Mayer, sorry. <laughs> oh. um, okay. <laughs> it's not me playing the harmonica. All right, I knew that was going to happen. Um, I really must fix that. Let me see. Um. <laughs> so um, hopefully this will work out when we get to the videos. I'm not sure. We'll go back to John Meyer. But anyway, so what role does math play? It, it, play, it uh, ends people's college career. It traumatizes people, even these highly professional, educated people. In fact, this is Vivian talking about math, saying, this has pursued me through my whole life. It's so undermining of your whole being to be so bad at maths, you just feel so stupid. And in fact, since I published that book, I've been on this whole journey of meeting many members of the public and politicians and all sorts of different people and have become so used to this story of trauma, not just people having bad experiences of math, but the way it really, as she says, it blights their lives. So um, I often make the claim that math is the subject with the greatest difference between what we know works from research and what happens in classrooms. We know how to teach math well. Unfortunately, that's not reflected in most math classrooms. It's also uh, the subject with the greatest difference between the way experts define it and the way school children define it. So if you ask a mathematician to talk about the nature of what math is, they'll tell you it's like the study of patterns, that it's this beautiful aesthetic subject. You ask school children what math is, and they'll tell you something very different from that. Um, and it's also the subject that should be the most useful for children's lives. It's everywhere now in their lives, but often it's completely inert. So even students who are successful at math, do well on tests, find that they can't use, use that math they've learned out in their lives. So for me, one study more than anything illustrates the problems and the issues. Um, and I want to share that with you briefly now. And really the gap between what we know works and what happens in classrooms. So these are two professors from England, and they did a study of 72 students between the ages of 7 and 13. And they had um, asked teachers to give them students in the categories of above average, average, and below average. 
So this was interesting. They gave them different problems to do. Like this is one, addition of a single digit number to a teen digit number with a total below 20. So 4 plus 13 would be an example. And they then collected their strategies. So one strategy students use at the most basic level is counting all. So in the counting all strategy, they say, okay, I've got 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, I need to add 13. So it's going to be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and they count the whole set. The slightly more sophisticated strategy is counting on, where students say there's four, and then I need 13, so that's five, six, and they count on from four. Known facts is where many people here probably just know that four plus 13 is 17. You've memorized that. And what they call derived facts, and I would call number sense, is where students are able to break apart the numbers and, put, and, and add and subtract with that sort of number flexibility. So you might say, well, I know four and three is seven, and then add that onto 10. That would be an example of using number sense. So what was really interesting was they found this in the uh, above average eight-year-old students, 30% of them just knew the numbers, 61% of them engaged in number sense, 9% of them counted on. Um, and in the below average students of the same age, 6% of them used known facts, none of them used number sense. 72% counted on, 22% counted all. But when they looked at the 10-year-olds, and you can think of um, the below-average group, use the same number of known facts as the above-average 8-year-olds. So sort of another two years on, and they've re remembered sort of this, the same number of facts. But still, virtually no use of number sense amongst the 10-year-olds. And instead, they're just continuing to count. And... What they found in that study and what we know from other studies is that the difference between low-achieving and high-achieving students is not that high-achieving students know more maths, uh, but actually that they're engaging in a very different way of thinking and it's a more flexible form of thinking. And Gray and Tall made the point that low-achievers, often thought of as slow learners, are actually learning a different mathematics to other students. And the mathematics they're learning is a more difficult form of mathematics. And that's a really important point. Um, so, if, for example, if we take the strategy of counting back, people here might say 16 take 13, while well, I know 6 take away 3 is 3, and 10 take away 10 is 10, but low-achieving students will use the strategy of counting back. And if you think about that strategy, you start with 16, you count down 13 numbers, 15, 14, 13. The cognitive complexity in doing that is actually very high, and there's a very high room for error. But what, what they've found and what other researchers have found is that low-achieving students kind of cling to these strategies that they've been taught, like counting. But unfortunately, counting grows ever more complex as problems become more difficult, and that's where they get into problems. And math is a conceptual subject. It's a, it's a subject of conceptual um, understanding. And even these methods of counting, like the method of counting leads into the concept of number. And the method of counting on leads into a concept of sum. Addition leads into a concept of product. And what we know about mathematics is that as you learn more mathematics, as you learn and you move around this conceptual domain, you engage in this thing called compression. So this is what compression is. Um, when you learn some new math, mathematics, it takes up a large space in your brain, if you like. There's a lot to think about, how it works, how it connects. But... Um, maths you've learned well and over time has be becomes compressed inside your brain. So for most of you here, 
or maybe everybody here, uh, if we were to do some simple addition, you wouldn't have to think a lot about it. You could just do the addition. Uh, you can recall it quickly and easily. It doesn't take up a big space in your mind. But if I taught you some new maths, it would take up a lot bigger space. So kids, everybody, we adults engage in this act of mathematical compression. And this is uh, William Thurston, who's a Fields Medal winning mathematician, talking about it. He says, mathematics is amazingly compressible. You may struggle a long time, step by step, to work through the same process or idea from several approaches. But once you really understand it and have the mental perspective to see it as a whole, there's often a tremendous mental compression. You can file it away, recall it quickly and completely when you need it, and use it as just one step in some other mental process. The insight that goes with this compression is one of the real joys of mathematics. Unfortunately, for students who are low achieving, they don't really uh, experience this great joy that William Thurston talks about. And that's partly because they're not engaging in this compression. And that's because they're not engaging in this conceptual domain of mathematics. And um, for them, uh, their learning is less like this sort of triangular image as it is a ladder of methods and rules that stack one on top of each other. And um, as Gray and Tor concluded, their persistence in emphasizing procedures, or you know, uh, those are emphasized for them, leads many children inexorably into a cul-de-sac from which there's little hope of future development. And as they point out, when students become identified as low achieving, they often get given more procedures, more drill, if you like, more practice. And um, as they point out, they become further apart from the flexible thinkers. So I've done a lot of work recently coming to understand low-achieving students, and we're going to look at some classrooms in a, in a minute. But, um, and in doing that, I've been looking both at research but also at practice, and I've been doing this with uh, one of my doctoral students currently, Kathy Humphreys. She's taught for many, many years, and what we're realizing is that something fundamentally problematic for many students is that they go down the wrong pathway in mathematics early on. And that leads to a very harmful mindset around math. And I'm not going to talk a lot about mindset today. But you get this combination of students who believe the wrong things about math, have gone down the wrong pathway of um, having certain things emphasized for them. Um, and through many studies of students working in classrooms, which I haven't got time to show you today, uh, what it turns out is, we realize now, is that low-achieving students are often learning a harder form of mathematics. They're much less likely to view maths as a set of numbers or shapes that they can use flexibly. I haven't got time to show you the evidence for this today, but that's really harmful for them. Uh, they compress ideas less. They see mathematics as a set of rules, all equally important. Uh, they're often trapped in these procedural cul-de-sacs, clinging to methods that they, they've taught and worked um, and not moving outside of those. They're unwilling to act on problems, to make them easier. I'd like to talk to you more about this one, but there isn't time today. But um, in the examples of teaching, which I'm going to show you later, that I was involved in, we found that even when we tried to show students how to work on their math problems to make them more accessible and make sense of them, they were really resistant to that because they thought you had to do the question exactly as it had been given to them. So that's also really harmful. And then 
they th often think that every problem in a math classroom has a new set of rules. So this is a whole way of thinking about math that's extremely harmful and is really um, very rampant amongst low-achieving students. So I'm going to take you into a classroom now. It's a classroom that Kathy Humphreys is the teacher. And it illustrates some of these things in a very short clip. And this happens to be um, a class that Kathy went into to do a short teaching intervention around fractions. It's a sheltered class, so the students are all language learners. And I'll talk a bit about the impact of that too. But so this, in this short video, we're going to see Kathy uh, give the students this problem. What fraction of this share square is shaded? So these are sixth grade students. They've learned fractions probably every year for the last four years. Um, and she had been working on fractions with them for a week or so and decided to step back and give what she thought would be a very simple problem for them to talk about and think about. So you'll see what happened. And in this clip, we'll see a small group talk a little bit, and then it will go to the whole class. And I want us to think together, I want you to think about what these students, the things these students say have to do with that uh, mindset that I just put up for you. So I'm a little bit worried that when I press play, we're going to go into my iTunes uh, music. So let me just do something to make sure that doesn't happen. Let's go back. Okay. Come back. Oh, my curves is over there. Okay. Put your pencils down, and I'm going I'm to try some more questions and just see. This is a shape everybody's pretty familiar with. What fraction of this shape is shaded? Now, we know it's not one half. There should be 29, 29 hands up right now. 28, maybe. Which fraction is shaded of the whole square? Oh, please. Talk to each other. This is not good enough. What, what fraction of the square is go up and say what fraction of that is that whole square is shaded in one. All right, William, you're up. And you have to, you listen to him and you see if he's giving a convincing argument. He has to convince you. And if you're not convinced, you have to ask him questions. All right, all right, William, try to do con be convincing. I think it's one fourth because if you divide right here, right there, you have four squares. 
and they all have the same area. And if you shave one in, um, it, it would be one fourth. Okay, but students, you're being really quiet right now. If you did, you have to. Did William convince you? If he didn't convince you, ask him a question that will help you. In other words, make him accountable for his his uh, proof. Okay, there you go, William. Um, what are the rules? Like the rules to do. How can you know you're right if you don't know the rules? So I'd like you to talk just for a moment to the person next to you and think about that group conversation and think about Miguel's question and think about what do they tell us about their views about math and their mathematical pathways. What do you see in that? So just talk for a moment with the people next to you. All right, I'm going to stop you there. I know that was very brief. <laughs> I'm really just um, giving you a little bit of time to chat so people are going to be brave enough to talk now. So would anybody like to share and to tell us what, what do those students tell us about their pathways? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Rules matter. Mm -hmm. Very uh, strong uh, sense that you have to follow rules at the expense of beautiful explanation from William um, that made a lot of sense. Uh, he was giving a sort of sense-making explanation which was rejected. Anything else that people noticed? Yeah, at the back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we see in that very small group the kids very unconfident. They offered a tooth, a hole, a third, a half. Um, any other thoughts? About anything? Yeah. Yeah, and Jenny, you want to say something? The rules? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Hand at the back. I have a gut reaction uh -huh. to the rules piece. Uh-huh. Because I came through a system where I, I learned the rules but didn't always understand why. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so these kids have been, like, they've come, brought, been brought up on a system of rules. And, um, yeah, maybe last comment. 
Uh-huh. And, yeah, they don't feel safe. And even more than that, you probably, it's hard to hear that small group interaction in one play, but um, I've seen it a few times. And the boy says, the boy with his back to us says, oh, well, if you drew lines, you would see that there's one out of four. And the boy next to him says, but there are no lines. So this is part of this idea that um, I have up there somewhere that um, you can't act on numbers or shapes. You can't do anything with them. You have to answer the question exactly as it is. And then he says, plus, she didn't say, can you prove? And one of the things, so I I was going to add on to this list. They they don't see a role for sense-making or reasoning, but there's something about language learners that I've been coming to understand better also from watching these clips, that they almost have another bind on top of all of this, that they are so carefully trying to pay attention to the language of the teacher, the exact meaning of the words of the teacher, that that also acts against uh, really what we need them to do, which is to be working with agency and thinking a bit about the situation and, and playing with it and trying things. And So Kathy is wanting them to use, to make sense of things. And they are trying, and in another clip, which I didn't have time to show you, uh, whether they are having a discussion about fractions, and somebody makes a good argument that these fractions are the same because they're equal areas, and the other boy says, no, but she didn't ask us to talk about areas. She asked us to talk about fractions. So it's, I've started to notice this more and more, that they, uh, this need to pay attention to the words of the teacher is acting... Um, making even more barriers for language learners and low-achieving students. So I'm going to, in the second half, tell you about a teaching intervention that we did at Stanford that I was one of the teachers for. And um, so you may be having questions at this point. When I show people this, they're like, what? so what do we do? What do we do with all these students who have this wrong, this mindset and this um, whole pathway they've gone down that is really harmful for them? So we decided one year to try, try and shift students' mindset um, and pathway. And we did it through a class. Um, there was actually a summer school class. So some of you may know in the STEP teacher program here, the first, experience, the, step, the first thing the STEP teachers do, they start in the summer and they go and watch summer school. So I was never too thrilled about the teaching they were watching in summer school. So one year we decided to go in and do the teaching ourselves. So... Um, Myself and four graduate students, who are now all professors in various places, went in and we decided to teach a class on algebra over five weeks. Um, the students were seventh and eighth graders, but we wanted to teach algebra as a problem-solving tool. So uh, some of the students had met algebra, some of them hadn't, but algebra is usually taught as an, as an end in itself in this country. You solve for X. Um, Whereas we wanted to teach them that when you're working on problems, you can use algebra to help you solve problems so that they would see algebra differently. And we also wanted to integrate these mathematical practices that are now very famous in the, com- uh, in the Common Core with the content of mathematics. So I'm going to show you a little bit the students, a little bit of background. This is their ethnicity. Um, I described the students we taught as disaffected. They were unhappy, disaffected math students. But actually, their prior achievement was pretty mixed. 40% of them had got an A or B in math class in the the prior term. 40% of them had got a D or F. Uh, But the reason I described them as disaffected, we gave them all surveys on the first day. And I should tell you, they all shuffled into class on the first day, not happy to be there, um, with their hoods up. And they were, you know, 
They had come from 35 different middle schools. They didn't know each other. They were there in the summer. Uh, these are some of their surveys from the first day. When you think of math, what comes to mind? Boring, confusing, waste of time. Uh, I hope this math class will make me better and enjoy it. When you think of math, what comes to mind? Boring. I hope this math class will make me like it. Nearly all of the surveys looked like that uh, when they came in. Um, 90% of them had been forced to come to the classes. So it was a challenging uh, five-week class, and um, there were four classes of students we were working with. And very briefly, these were four teaching principles. We wanted to engage students as active um, and capable learners. We wanted them to be working on math, where they were using their own ideas and thoughts, not just watching math be done to them, but actually uh, actively with agency and capable, the capable bit, we had no tracking of any sort. They were grouped heterogeneously. We wanted to tell them all that they could uh, do well, you know, achieve highly on this math. Uh, these mathematical practices, we wanted to teach them things like reasoning, representing, generalizing. These are the actions that are in the Common Core now. And the new Common Core curriculum is completely different from ones before it because it has defined these ways of doing math actively as part of the curriculum. So we gave them lots of um, algebraic work where they had to think about different growth of patterns and represent them algebraically. And we worked a lot on generalizing. We gave many visual um, tasks you'll see in a moment. Uh, we wanted to develop a collaborative community. They all came to us saying that they'd only ever worked in silence in math up to uh, that, which was pretty surprising to me, shocking. And we wanted to give opportunities for student voice, both in talking and presenting in class, but also we gave them all journals on the first day of class, and um, we let them decorate them. We told them this was their space for their own mathematical ideas and thoughts and questions, and we didn't write in them at all. We wrote when we gave them feedback on post-it notes so it could be their own space. It's hard to think of a book as your own when teachers have written all over it. Um, so we didn't do that. And uh, we collected a lot of data on what happened to the students, um, interviews, assessments. Now, really, we, were, we, look, we looked a little at these three different things. Um, the achievement piece was not our main goal. We really wanted to shift their ways of understanding what math was. And... Um, but, and also, they'd come from 35 different middle school classes. But we realized in the very last week that we, we weren't going to give them a test because they'd all come from all over the place. But we realized in the last week that they'd all done the Mars test, which is a test that's given out in the Bay Area, a math test, in their school. So we gave them a repeat of the algebra questions in the last week, even though we hadn't really covered the content in the test because we weren't thinking of using it. But... Um, and then we, what we really were focused on was engagement and their enjoyment and how they were acting with mathematics. So, but anyway, on the test piece, there was a significant increase in their core mathematical algebraic understanding. But what we were really pleased with was the shift in students' engagement. So here we see some pictures of the early uh, weeks of class. Um, but generally, those kids came in very unhappy to be there, as I've said, and very reluctant. And when they uh, were talking, they were socializing, not talking about math. And what we saw was an amazing shift over the five weeks, whereby the kids would be queuing up outside the room in the later weeks, jostling to get in so they could get back to work on the math problem that they'd been working on before. So 
Um, I'm going to show you a video. That we have lots of photos of them at work, but um, this is Emily, one of the teachers. Some of you may remember. So we were really pleased with the way students were so positive about it. And this was some of the more quantitative data. How much have you enjoyed this class? Has this been more or less useful? But I, I like to show you sort of individual students to help understand the shift. And I'm going to introduce you to a couple of them now. This is Kit. Kit's the one in, uh, with the hood up in black. And Kit was typical of many students. She came into us saying that she only liked music and art and movies. She saw herself as very creative. She saw as math, math is outside of that. And she could not allowing herself, her to be herself in math. And this is her intro form. Whose idea was it for you to come? The school made me. Did you want to come? No, because I got to get up early, then take the bus, then walk, also because it's boring. When you think of math, what comes to mind? Boring and sleep and complete this thought. I hope this math class will end fast. <laughs> so Kit was one of the students who totally... Um, transformed in the five weeks we were with her. She, when we, she worked on these open visual math problems, she suddenly found room for her own thoughts and creativity in a way she never had before. And this was her afterwards saying, uh, this math class is a lot funner and more interesting and I'm actually learning something about math. Uh, what, is it more or less useful? She said, more because in a regular math class you have to do everything the teacher's way and sometimes I don't get it. And in here I could do the problems whatever way I want. And that statement spoke to the agency piece that was so important to her that she could use her own thoughts and her own ideas, working out what methods to use, what approaches to take, uh, mathematical pathways. This is Rochelle in the red. And Rochelle was one of the high-achieving students. She came in having got an A in her previous math class. But like many of the high-achieving students, she told us that she was really confused about math. Uh, you can see she annotated the form for us at the top. <laughs> Um, I felt sorry for her when I read this. Did you want to come? I was supposed to go to London, but my mum saw the form and said I should go. So, you know, end of vacation, go to summer school instead. When you think of math, what comes to mind? Numbers and hard, even though I get good grades and confusing. And this is Rochelle at the end saying, this is way better than any other math class I've been in. You participate more and work together. Now, I haven't got time today to really show you uh, data from the kids, but those two things were huge, and the two biggest things for all the students. You participate, you actually do math, um, and, and work together. So on the working together, they did all come from silent math classes. There's one, one of the quotes, for the past year, math year was the hardest because you're not supposed to talk, you're not supposed to communicate, which is interesting. And then this is them talking about our classes, saying in normal school you don't get to do this, but it helped me understand things more. He's talking about discussions. And it helps me see how they see it and to see if I could understand it. So they really got a lot from just talking to each other about the math and not got a lot in terms of it made it more fun, but actually it really gave them access to understanding. Um, this is one who was, spoke very beautifully, saying... One girl, it's like the way, the way our schools did it. It's like very black and white. And the way people do it here, it's like very colorful, very bright. You have very different varieties you're looking at. You can look at it one way, turn your head, and all of a sudden you see a whole different picture. So I like that one. Um, so I'm going to show you a little bit now. We're going to watch another short video. 
uh, from the class, and I want to uh, use some of the work of Sarah Kate, one of my students. She's over here somewhere, over there. Um, very briefly, she did a really nice analysis of the role of representations in the student's understanding. Um, and I don't think we've got time to have you work on this now. I was thinking about giving you this problem to work on, but I think we're at not enough time. But anyway, we gave them this problem. How many blocks are in case 100? And... Something about this problem, I give this to teachers sometimes, and if I ask them that question, how many blocks are in case 100, they draw up a table and find an answer. Um, what we worked on with the students was, con was connecting the mathematical, the generalization with the visual representation of the growth of this function. So now when I work with teachers, I don't ask them that question, I, and I, I ask them something I'll ask you, which is how do you see that pattern growing? So it grows from one case to the next. And if we had time, I would get you to think about that and talk to each other. We haven't. But I will say that there are many different ways of seeing how the pattern grows. And in fact, once you understand the visual growth of the pattern, that is a route into understanding the algebraic generalization that many students don't get access to. And um, so we, we're going to watch three boys at work now. And these three boys were the three naughtiest boys in my class, <laughs> I can tell you. They um, were very off-task in the first weeks. They were, talk they were happy to like, you know, shout out remarks and stop other people from taking the math seriously. And they were but something happened where they became so engaged in this mathematical work. This clip will show you, I'll show you came from a 70-minute period where they worked on this math problem without any distraction or they were just so into the problem. Um, in fact, at one point, some girls came over and started poking them and they moved to another table to carry on working and we're going to watch them at work. So um, this comes a little bit from Sarah Kate's analysis. So this is the case growth and I asked you to look at uh, how it grows. This is actually a quadratic uh, function. And the, if you worked on the generalization of this, you, you would find that uh, case n or the hundredth case, uh, well, for case n has n plus 1 uh, squared blocks. And many people, and some people see this as the growth of a square. Other people um, see it as the growth, and you may have done this, of a new row coming at, a, at each point of the, each new case. as a new row on the bottom of the case. Other people see it as the case uh, growing by block, new blocks coming on the top of each case. And you probably saw it in one of, or one of those two ways. Some people see it as the whole square growing. But in that group of three boys, uh, this is the work of the three of them. And you can see we asked them to think about it on their own first and then to talk to each other. And so Luke and Jorge had both seen the... Um, pattern growing by a new row each time. And Carlos had seen it growing with a new, row, a new block on the top each time. And um, this is part of Sarah Kate's analysis, but as she watched it in detail, uh, we realized, or she wrote, that they first of all recognized that there were, there were different ways of seeing this problem. And we see Carlos saying, so case zero adds up by one, and the sides go up by one, right? It adds up by it. And Luke says, you mean it puts one on the bottom? And um, they move into realizing that they're seeing it differently and explaining their differences to each other and then making new connections through the different ways of seeing the problem. 
So we're going to watch them, a very short clip, three minutes of them at work now, uh, before we finish. And um, so I didn't mention, I meant to mention that one of these students had got an A in the previous math class, one of them had got an F, and one of them had got a D in their previous math class. So very heterogeneous group working together. They talk about Gauss. In a few, uh, in earlier weeks, we'd show them Gauss's method for adding numbers from 1 to 100, and one of the students references that, so that's what that means. But I want you to think about, as we watch this, what factors, you'll see the boys super engaged in this math task. So what's going on, this abstract math task that engages three boys for 70 minutes? Um, the... Um, You'll notice as well in this three-minute clip the rise and fall of mathematical problem solving. You'll see them get closer, get further away. Anyway, may not make a lot of sense to you, but you'll see their engagement. Hold on. What did you see? Four. You add these two, and then so I'm going to add this. So that's, so that's two. No. That, that, that one and that, one. That, and that, and so that. this is one. No. Two. No, no, no. This is three. How much is it right here? Three, that's right? Three. 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 But you did yours differently. Yeah. You did the same. And there's more. Oh, I see. Yeah, you did. Okay. It's because there was two parts. Yeah. 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 Gallows, whatever he doesn't Yeah. What's his name? Gallows? Gallows. 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 It's the Hesh method, right? Two, two, yeah, two more. Like, uh, three. Two more right there. Like case. Case. Zero. There'll be only this one and this one. But then, See, like, then you you look at case four. Look at case four. This is three, I mean. One and that one? Yeah, this is case four. Is that, right? Yeah. That? No, that and that is that. And that and that is that. Yeah. Okay, okay, we got that. But we still have to add it. So, how we get add everything? So, this is this is case ten? That's one. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, wait, wait. That'd be twenty. Nah. That'd be twenty. That'd be ten thousand. But there'll be there's 20, 20 sets of things, right? And this has five sets of things. Mm -hmm. And there will be a, a ten thousand. That'd be that'd be three six nine. I think that'd be ten thousand or more. Case one hundred. Case one hundred, and that's twenty. That'd be two thousand. Cause look, it'd be two thousand. Uh, it'd be more. No, cause look at this ten. No, watch. It'll only be 30. Because if this is 10, right? If this is 10, 1 and that's 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Oh, wait, this is Adam, so here's mine. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be 2,000. 2,000. Oh, yeah. 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 Just got the two numbers is ten. Look, look, there's twenty, there's twenty seconds. Watch, watch. Just for no. ten. This is a hundred. Yes. Oh, you just broke the pen. Oh, you broke it. Wait, you were right, man. I'm sorry. You multiply it by two? Yes. I know. Sorry. I, I, I didn't know it was because you add two more on every uh, case you put down. Well, actually, see, look, for every two numbers, there's 20 sets, right? Yeah. For every two numbers, there's 10. 
So 2 divided by 20 is 10, and then multiply it by 10, and multiply it by itself. That's all yeah. you do. Divide by 2, and then multiply it by itself. Oh, listen. Oh, we got it. Alright, so um, we only have a few minutes left, so I, I think uh, I'll just ask you, who, who can see different factors that are causing these kids to be engaged? What's keeping them so engaged in this math task? Anyone? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're using their own knowledge, their own ideas to solve this problem, which is very important to them, yeah. They don't agree with each other, so mm -hmm. Uh huh. So yeah, they're having discussion and um, they're debating. Yeah, I, I could add something, but I'll, I'll wait. Yeah, they're making predictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had some mixed groups that were pretty engaged. I, I that's a good question. Uh, other things, yeah. They're encouraging. Yeah, and in fact, um, you probably noticed uh, Jorge, who is the student in the middle who had previously got an F, was very quiet, uh, but had made a small contribution which the uh, A student stopped and, and shook his hand and um, sort of gave him status about that, which was nice. They had, even in a very short time, teachers say to us, oh, how do we get students to work respectfully with each other in groups? It's impossible. And these students had never worked together before, had never met each other before, and only three or four weeks into the class, they uh, were working very respectfully. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, the visual aspect was super important to the kids. Um, and one of them said to me afterwards, I found this really sad actually in interviews, one of them said, the best thing about this summer math, uh, she said, I had never seen a mathematical idea before. And um, that, you know, is awful. But we did a lot of work with them, giving them visual representations of math. And um, what you would see if you watched this more as well is how, how helped they were by the representations they had in their books, which served as a talking point for the, each other. They looked at them, they talked to them, they pointed at them. Um, and they had seen the problem differently, as we'd seen, which relates to this person's point about them having kind of debate. Um, any other thoughts about? Yeah. They emphasize problem solving. Mm -hmm. sort of universality of people wanting to solve problems and piece together a puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, so they were genuinely kind of intrigued. People think that you have to make math, you know, in, in realistic situations to grasp kids. You don't. I mean, that can be good as well. But these kids were genuinely uh, wanted to solve the problem and work out how uh, they could know how many were in this bigger case. And, you know, there are other factors as well, um, but those are the main things I think people have raised, that they were, they were really um, enjoyed using their own ideas and thoughts and could grapple. And one of the main things about the heterogeneity that worked so well was that we found that with kids like Jorge, they absolutely loved working on harder math problems with these high-achieving kids. And if anything, the level of conversation was just raised up to the level of the highest 
thinking kids. Uh, people worry about heterogeneous classes being, you know, pulled down by low-achieving kids. We didn't see that at all. We saw the levels and... One of his reflections at the end was he really enjoyed this summer math because it was the first time he'd been given hard problems to work on um, because he was in a low track. And So anyway, after the summer, it was really a great success. We went to see the students. We wanted to see if these practices we taught them had been useful to them. But when we caught up with them in their classes in, back in middle school in the Bay Area, we found that without exception, they were sitting in rows, the teacher was at the front presenting, and they were working through worksheets. So the exact classrooms that they would told us before coming in um, was the reason for their lack of engagement. So we did, were able to do a comparative analysis of their grades, comparing them to the other kids in the summer school who weren't in our math classes, and we did find that there was a significant improvement in their grades, but it just went away uh, two quarters in after, you know, they get put back into the environments that is um, causing their disaffection. So, and we caught up with that same girl who made that nice comment um, in the fall, and she said, I would say the only way to describe summer school is very colourful, and then this class is just still uh, black and white. And you just want to ask, can I have a little bit of yellow? <laughs> So I'm going to uh, finish. I said that I would talk about why equitable math classrooms are so difficult to achieve. So I'm just going to finish with uh, a few, very briefly, by saying that these kids are on really damaging mathematical pathways from an early point in their school career. And unless we shift them off those pathways um, and give them new ways to engage with math, we're really struggling to have um, higher achievement. There's a lot of fixed mindset. I think I haven't talked about this today. I've been doing a lot of work recently with Carol Dweck and math teachers to try and get them to have a growth mindset and uh, believe in the kids that they're uh, teaching. Parents and society, there's um, a lot of belief amongst parents that math is only for some kids, and we have to battle against that. And often those are you know, men and people of a certain color and... So there are really widespread beliefs out there that we have to battle with, and also widespread conservatism about teaching. Um, from the mathematician at Stanford who accused me of scientific misconduct to try and keep the, my research results uh, silenced because they were about equitable math teaching, to just parents who think that teaching has to be a teacher standing at the front talking to kids in math classrooms. That's part of the success of the Khan videos, is it fits people's perceptions of what te good teaching is. In fact, I think the teaching in the Khan videos is very low quality and really damaging for kids. But, can, you know, it can be fine for reviewing things, but schools now are using it in place of teachers, which is really, really worrying. So, um, and that's because it, many people think that's, that's what teaching is, a, a voice standing telling. And then... Finally, the cocooning of research knowledge. We have so much knowledge about good ways of teaching math, and so little of it has made it into classrooms. And that's partly because the knowledge is wrapped up in research journals, which teachers never read. Um, I'm now I'm excited to be I'm teaching a math class um, with Udacity, one of the big MOOC providers, and I'm teaching a class for teachers with them. So that's another way. I, but I think we all have to, I mean, those of us who do work in education and those of us who know what works really have a, a responsibility to find ways of getting that knowledge out to the public and to teachers um, much more effectively. So I'm going to finish there. I know some people have to leave at one, and there's 
if you don't have to leave at one, we have a long time for questions, and um, we're going to start those now, I think. Thanks. You're in charge of the questions. Oh, thank you. I step out. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Okay. Walk around. I'm Dennis Jackson. I'm the executive director of SCO, and I'd like to open it for questions. So any questions? I know I have a ton. Don't be quiet, because I heard you talking during There's the uh, chat time. There's there we go, right here. Thank you for an excellent presentation and bringing us up to date. Um, I want to ask us what might be a different kind of question, and if you want to rule it out, that's okay. Um, but in a previous millennium, there was an uh, imaginative governor of North Carolina who created a residential school that took bright uh, students from every county in the state. They came to Chapel Hill. They lived there. And the head of the math department, a guy named Steve Davis, said uh, he didn't want to teach anything that did not have a practical application. So, for example, when they looked at the trigonometry course, uh, he ruled out conic sections because he thought the only reason to include uh, conic sections is they'll go on to the calculus. Um, so what he did was to um, get them involved in, and he made his decisions on the basis of is it directed toward the calculus or is it directed toward something useful that children can do? And I'd like your comment on that bit of curriculum. Mm. You might challenge that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think all math has to have practical applications. And as you can see from that example we used, kids can be super engaged about math that's, um, doesn't seem to have particular applications for them that they could see at that moment. And I think the thing is we're trying to teach them with math to problem solve and think and use methods, and you don't often know. I mean, th those ways of thinking are what kids are going to use. Um, so engaging them in those ways of thinking around any math problem is fine, I think. The, um, but also, we don't really know what's going to be useful. The ground is shifting so fast out there with technology and uh, the society we live in. I think deciding something's going to be useful is, in school is dangerous. But I think mostly, for me, the reason not to stick with practical applications is that kids can be really engaged with... Uh, you know, we, we see third graders having an in-depth discussion of what a negative number is. They're really fascinated by it. It's not... Um, so, yeah, I, I think the practical side can be useful, and it's good to have some math that kids work on where they see a direct practical application, but I wouldn't limit that to the only math they use for me. Yes, right over here. Joe, your, your slide says equitable math, mm -hmm. but I haven't seen the kind of math that you uh, illustrated anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering to what degree it's a question of equitableness, <laughs> equity, <laughs> and to what degree it's just a matter of we don't teach math well in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, I started off saying I'm not going to talk about the word equity a lot and set out what I think is going wrong for kids in this country, and I think that leads to inequities. I think, so we have uh, damaging math 
teaching and environments, and layered on top of that, we have discriminatory perspectives about kids. So, you know, uh, if you uh, early on subjected to the idea that you were low-achieving kids, and disproportionately we know that's true for kids of color and for girls, um, kids from less wealthy backgrounds, then you're going to be in that pathway of low-achieving kids. So I think that's the connection with equity for me. I think this is good teaching. This is good teaching for everybody. It's not just a teaching approach that's more equitable. But there is a connection between the two in that way, in the way that you're suggesting, I think, Deborah. Deborah, I just make one comment. There are math programs out there that teach like that. Um, one for elementary is investigations by Turk, and then there's middle school math um, that I can't remember the name of, I apologize. But there are people that are doing this kind of math. The gentleman right here, and I'm looking on this side. Thanks, Joe. Um, we have a group of us from a local school district here, and um, one of the things that I um, uh, am always curious about is why we can't offer um, – I, I think that schools are, are growingly going to need to become places where parents and students can get the kind of learning in the ways that they want, and that the way that math is currently taught is, is, is in demand in a lot of communities, mm -hmm. particularly high-achieving communities. Um, and the other kind of math is just as equally beneficial for students depending upon the perspective. And so um, is it a possibility to provide a more sort of uh, uh, menu of different ways to learn math so that um, it doesn't have to become the math wars repeated every 10 years about whether or not mm -hmm. this way is the right way or that way is the right way, but we say whatever way works best for you is the way that it, mm. we're going to provide an opportunity to learn? Um. Well, it's good. I think you're right that we're moving to an era of more choice and people can find different ways. I think these different models of teaching um, are not uh, are ones that we ha know a lot about, though. And I think that peop some people would like a passive approach to math learning. They want to sit in a classroom where people tell them things. What we know from a lot of research is that it's not going to be useful for them, even if they feel secure in that kind of method and that kids who learn in that approach, even if they do well on tests and not able to use it later. Uh, we happen to be living now at a time where about 60% uh, of the jobs in the future will require mathematical ways of thinking and working that are held by about 20% at most of kids and that's partly because of that way of teaching. So I don't think it's just about saying, well, there are different ways and let's offer a different alternatives. I think uh, we should be offering what we know is effective. Now, there isn't just one way that's effective. I'm, it's not like you teach like this or nothing. There's lots of different ways of engaging kids actively in math. But I think um, where we know a model is not effective, then even if it's something that parents think because it's what they had in math, I think it's our duty as educators to help them understand and move beyond that. So I don't think it's just about giving parents what they want. Um, <clears throat> I had a question. Um, so you said that uh, children go off on damaging pathways. My question was, why do you think that they do? And so that's one question. And then the other question that I had was that um, not just you, but I think all of us who use the word achievement, and I'm curious as to is it understanding that we really should be talking about rather than achieving because 
Is it that they don't understand mm -hmm. something in a particular way versus that they didn't, you know, accomplish something? Because they accomplish a lot of things, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that was my question is why do they choose a particular path? Um, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so children are pushed down that path early on um, by the teaching they experience in school. The teaching that for a long time has been much too procedural. And I've learned that um, there's something very kind of uh, appealing about an algorithm. That teachers, uh, kids can have learned to make sense of things. They can have beautiful reasoning and ways of thinking. And somebody teaches them an algorithm and that sense making goes out the window. And there's something about it. It's something about the quantification of things that is appealing to everybody perhaps. But... Um, so they have a, children are taught in an algorithmic way much too early that, and they, uh, when they start to achieve, uh, when they start to not do well in school and be um, struggling, they tend to get more of that. That's the last thing they need is to get, be given more drill, more methods, more repetition. They really need at that point to shift in their thinking about how they're working and what we saw from that study is that Low-achieving kids are low-achieving because they're not engaging in this flexible thinking. And so um, that happens because of the teaching in schools, but also because of the interventions. And the kids who do badly are often, you know, go home to their parents, giving them flashcards to, you know, drill in the methods they're meant to remember. So um, there's many reasons that kids are on that pathway. When we look at successful math people, mathematicians... They've often been successful uh, because of things that have happened to them outside school. That's because they've like, uh, had a parent who's given them puzzles to do, who's kept them on that pathway of math is about thinking and problem solving. Um, it's a really important message that kids need to get, and kids who get that message are the ones that are more successful. The, yeah, I mean, you're right, it's not... Uh, it is uh, understanding and achievement are probably different things, particularly in a system like the one we've been in for the last decade, a very narrow test that uh, don't really target understanding. So, yeah, I think you're right about that. I wanted to focus in on your inverted pyramid uh -huh. of compression. Mm -hmm. uh, I find it fascinating and perhaps a little disturbing. Mm -hmm. It made me think of watching my son learn a... Uh, movement of a piano sonata in which it starts out with just a jumble of notes on the page mm -hmm. and by the end it's not it's not here it's in his fingers that mm -hmm. it's been compressed and that involves a, a rewiring of his brain so that the notes are in his fingers yeah I saw a study of a, a recent study of seven seven-year-olds who were weak readers and strong readers and they did fMRIs, and the strong readers had a substantially different neural connections mm -hmm. in the brain mm -hmm. by age seven yeah. that correlates with their reading and got better over time, meaning that the weak readers had to struggle even harder. Right. Would we see the same thing given mm -hmm. this kind of thinking restructuring along with neural restructuring that goes from the top to the bottom, and are these kids coming with actual... Um, physical differences in, in, in their brain structure that makes learning even harder. What I think the most amazing and interesting thing for me in recent 
um, in, a, in where we are now in our understanding of the brain is the amazing plasticity that you talk about. And so it is very likely that kids who are performing well have got some aspect of their brain that's been wired in that way because that's what happens when you work on the math tasks. When you work on things in certain ways, it does cause your brain to rewire. And what we know now is, I mean, people think, oh, well... That's worrying because of these kids have different brains, but what they're realizing is that the amazing capacity of brains to change within four weeks. They have studies now of kids doing a math intervention, and four weeks later their brains are rewired. So there is a brain aspect to these kids who are low-achieving. They haven't had the opportunities, and so they haven't had that uh, you know, brain opportunities, if you like. But happen, the same as in five weeks we could change those kids. Um, it's... So, I mean, that's the great thing about the brain research now is that I was showing teachers the other day the case of, a, I think, a seven-year-old girl who had half of her brain removed because of uh, fit she was having and absolutely stunned doctors by recovering all the capacity within weeks and months. So after a very short time, she was you know, back able to do the things that she had been, had been taken away from her. So yes, brains rewire, and yes, people have different wiring, but that is absolutely the result of these different things we do with kids. So that's why we need to be doing them. Hi. Yeah, given that kids are you know, in these sort of damaging math environments, and as a parent or maybe even as someone trying to maybe help kids who are low achieving, what is it for practical purposes, what would it take to sort of, because I can't control the yeah. classroom. No, they're, right. they're, they're, they're mm -hmm. low achieving. They're probably getting more and more of mm -hmm. these drills, these mm -hmm. very procedural things that you're saying don't do. What does it actually take in real terms to undo? To undo? To, to really mm -hmm. move those kids out of that, Yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, there are different options. One is a, and I had cha one other question, a change in school environment, which is obviously not an option for a lot of us. It makes me very sad that in this area it's the kids in the private schools who are engaging in this active mm -hmm. sense-making and not the kids in the public schools. So... Um, and then at home, I mean, with my own daughters who have also had a procedural math, my 10-year-old my, uh, hates math. Um, sees a, uh, she sees herself as kind of creative. She likes doing things with ideas. She sees it as totally rule-based, which I'm not surprised. But mm -hmm. So I just do other things with her around puzzles and problem-solving at home and games. Uh, games are really good for kids, any games with uh, numbers or dice or shapes or... So parents can do things like that with kids. Um, and then they need to give them other math experiences. And if the school, changing things in the school is not an option, um, it's doing math outside of, outside of the home. But it's very sad to me that the options for parents in, with kids in the public school system are very, seem very limited. Mm -hmm. And a quick, just one mm -hmm. quick follow-on question. In the movement to the Common Core Standards, do you think that will help to drive some of the changes in the classrooms? Because isn't that more about mm -hmm. focusing yeah, so, on these Yeah, I mean, the Common Core math curriculum isn't... Uh, the, the content of the curriculum, I don't find, was not as the shift that we could have done with. It, was, it isn't as great as it could have been. But what is great about it is they have this section called Mathematical Practices. 
And the practices are the doing things we want kids to be doing. So they now have listed them. They're in the curriculum. Um, teachers are told that they should be woven through all of their activities. And they are things like problem solving, sense making, reasoning. These are put out for teachers. Um, and they're going to be in the assessment. So already one of the things I do with teachers now is have them go through the released items for the Common Core. And they are freaking out when they do that. Because they find that um, they are requiring that kids make sense of the problems. They are, there's no A, B, C, D anymore. So the teachers I've been working with are saying, oh, my God, all that training we do on how to answer A, B, C, or D, we won't be able to do that anymore. I'm like, hooray. Um, <laughs> and, but they, really, it does, they are changing things. And so I, I have hope that the Common Core will have a big impact um, We'll see. Let's hope so. Hi. Um, I actually want to say a little bit about the brain thing that keeps coming up um, because I do study mathematics and I get a lot of people when they know that I'm a graduate student doing mathematics, they say, you know, I, I always hated math. Like that's most people will say that. Mm -hmm. And I think um, there's the concept of fixed intelligence, the idea that, that what's in your brain, mm -hmm. I mean, I know you're, you've already addressed this, but the idea that what's in your brain is like what you have and what you're born with. Um, and I usually I try to shift that thought by saying, first of all, I just love math. And secondly, I try to change the metaphor so that it's math as a sport, like math where you're like training your, your muscles and through consistently you know, doing things that you enjoy doing around mathematics, um, that that rewiring is an active process. Um, and when people think of math as a sport, it's not so scary and so like, oh, I'm the wrong sort of person. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that's not actually my question, sorry. Um, my question <laughs> has to do with, um, so in, it, in math, the math departments, the myth is that you won't get better at math after you're 25, or you'll mm -hmm. like right. do all the, your best math by that age. Yeah. Um, and there's some research that women and men that that's different, but but in terms of education, it's usually like sixth grade. You know, you have to get the kids by sixth grade, or you'll never teach them math. Um, and I I bring a very strong belief to whenever I work with people that you know they can take ownership of the math and they can learn, and overwhelmingly they will. But I don't have much evidence of that. So, I mean, I just wondered, mm -hmm. you know, how much damage do those myths themselves have mm -hmm. do and what do you think of the realities of them? Yeah. yeah, that myth, which is the thing I started with today, that only some, kid, some people can be good at math, is very damaging. Um, and, yeah, I know amongst mathematicians they believe that you're kind of, you know, finished by the time you're 26 or something because that's when you have your almost brilliant thoughts. Um, so... <laughs> It's very, it is very damaging. And you can, uh, you can have people achieve and enjoy math at any age, no matter what they've been through. Um, so I know of adults who've started learning math again because they have kids who are taking math and in school and suddenly saying, oh, gosh, this isn't, you know, why was I so terrified of this in school? And this is really easy and I'm really enjoying it. And so... Um, the, I taught a class to freshmen here at Stanford last quarter, and we worked on math differently together. And they all came in pretty much hating math and feeling really negative about math. And I worked uh, in a, 
sort of two-way approach of let's do math differently together and let's also, I worked on uh, mindset work with them about understanding that math is something that anybody can achieve highly and um, that really had a very positive impact. So I think that there are definitely, you can intervene at any age. Unfortunately, with the one, the intervention we did, it was only five weeks long, but then you send them back into the same classrooms, then that intervention is... Um, Know, eradicated so but you can change give people new experiences at any age oh <laughs> uh, many years ago I was uh, I had applied to teach kindergarten in San Mateo but they needed a seventh grade math and science teacher so they put me in seventh grade math and science as a science person that scared me a little but I was interested and I was told that out of 170 um, seventh grade students, uh, uh, 75 of them were in remedial math. And that was what I was supposed to be teaching. And so I lied to them all. I told them they were in a special project mm -hmm. and that um, each day we would evaluate the lessons because I was going to be designing lessons to teach adults how to do math. And so mm -hmm. they were going to be my guinea pigs. And I did nothing but hands-on with manipulatives. The first time I brought in Unifix cubes, all my seventh graders were on the floor linking them together to see how many it would take to get out the door, <laughs> just like my kindergartners would do. Uh -huh. But um, and each, at the end of each lesson, they evaluated the lesson to how much they had learned that day and what I should change and what I should make different. And at the end of the year, all but one of my students and those 75 went on to um, Algebra 1. So um, it is possible mm -hmm. to make a difference. Um, you just have to be right. willing to take the huge risk. Right. And when you know the principal walks into your room and he sees kids laying on the floor and building with blocks, you say to them, you know, I know that what they're doing is the right thing. Mm -hmm. Just you know, just have to wait until they take the test at the end of the year. That's great. And you're right. You have to have courage to do that. You really have to often work in a way uh, that is not encouraged by your principal, your management, other uh, administra administrators. There was a school in England that reminds me of who um, they would get sort of 50, 60 percent of uh, kids to pass the national exam at age 16 um, and uh, at a C grade or higher, which you can only get in the higher paper. Anyway, what they did was one year they just put everybody in for the higher paper everybody, which everybody thought was the most crazy thing ever, and all of those kids passed. They didn't change any teaching at all. They just told them all they were going in for this higher paper. So the power of those beliefs and expectations are huge, as well as the sort of teaching you're talking about. Um, but yeah, you have to be courageous when you're going against. And now, I mean, I talk to teachers who have the worst evil, I think, that's in the education system, pacing guides. I don't know whoever thought those uh, up, where they not only are teaching to the textbook, but they have to teach at the exact same pace as everybody else. I mean, it goes against everything we understand about kids learning and needing to uh, develop at different... Anyway, so yeah, teachers are working in a system where they're getting a huge amount of pressure to teach in a particular way, which is not the way that um, kids need. So bravery and courage is often needed. <laughs> She's coming. Thank you. Thanks. 
Um, another math grad student here. Um, uh, speaking of teaching techniques, um, so your, your five-week program seemed uh, quite effective. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the techniques you used, aside from, uh, you mentioned visuals, you mentioned uh, cooperative learning and, mm -hmm. and sort of discussion. I was wondering if you could mention some more of the strategies you used. Um, and as a follow-up, as, as follow I was wondering if you could mention, like, to what extent, I don't know, like, is this really possible in the current, like, setup, especially with the high-stakes testing mm -hmm. and all of this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really think it's possible with the new Common Core that's coming in. And there are some districts who are really grasping that and making changes now, which is great. So I do think it's possible. Uh, some more about our teaching. So we gave them big problems to work on. That was our goal, that they were problem-solving. Problems that they could bring different methods and ideas. And we were giving those to kids who'd never worked in those ways before and who were unconfident and... It was interesting. We've, so we, we've, we, did, um, we needed to do scaffolding. We, in the very first day, we gave them a problem, which is how many squares are on a chessboard. So that's an 8x8 eight eight board. The answer is not 64. Um, because there are like little 1x1 one one squares, there are 2x2 two two squares, there are 3x3 three three squares. So that was really interesting. That problem on that first day separated the high achievers from the low achievers. And what separated them was all of the students could find those squares, but the low-achieving students were not organizing their thinking. And the high-achieving students were. That was the simple difference between them. So right from the very first day, we realized we needed to teach the kids organization. They couldn't work on these big problems unless they knew how to do that. So um, we started giving them particular tasks, which we knew would lead them to, um, or would encourage them to use different methods of organizations. But our, our general, um, so we had uh, journals, as I, as I talked about at the beginning. We gave them uh, big problems to work on. We, when we needed to, because we would meet after every teaching session, we would adjust and bring in some activities that, that would help them with particular needs they had. Um, Jack, is that okay? What am I forgetting? What else did we do? Can you remember? Um, mm hmm Oh, yeah, and we did something that reminds me, too, of uh, that are called Number Talks every day. So Number Talks is a pedagogical strategy that I really love at the moment. It's really helpful for creating, um, for encouraging the flexible number thinking that I showed at the beginning is so absent in low achievers. And they're like 10-minute math talk things you do at the start of lessons where you give kids, we gave them abstract problems like 15 times 8, and then everybody has to think about it with no pen and paper. And then the teacher uh, asks kids to put their thumb up when they get an answer, not their hand, because that puts everybody else off. And then they just ask, well, how did you see it? And every time we did one of those number talks, we would get like six different ways of seeing the problem. So that just blew their minds. They were like, 8 times 15 has six different ways of doing it. That was, um, so those number talks both taught them about uh, numerical fluency and um, also about different method, uh, different ways of seeing. But yeah, Jack's right. We had different. So um, we did get them to come out and share their thinking and look at different strategies and talk about them. So we had a combination of working groups, working all together as a class. Um, but I think that's that's basically. We chose tasks uh, that were both visual and would help them with algebraic generalization and with. Um, uh, the uh, algebraic equivalents, so very early on they would come up with different algebraic expressions and we'd help them see through the visualization of the problem why those different expressions. So we did a lot of work connecting the 
visual aspects of algebra with the formal um, aspects. So if, they ca if students come up with something like x, is x squared plus 1, we'd say, okay, so show me that. Where's that x squared in your, think, in your diagram? And so they have to keep connecting back the visual uh, representation with the formal algebraic one. So um, those were the main things we did, I think. Hi, Joe. Um, Hi. So if I wanted to go back to my public high school and talk to my principal and math department about one sort of our remedi remediation for, uh, you know, ninth graders and on who are behind, who are sort of the subclass at our high-achieving school, and would it be sort of this is more of a lab approach? And then in the mainstream where everybody's happy, would it be also asking to introduce labs mm -hmm. and puzzles? Because I think we have highest end classes for math competitions mm -hmm. that get the puzzles and but stuff. They do, you're right. So, so how would a person, a parent, go back and mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you would want to talk about and ask about yeah. in a typical uh, you know, mm -hmm. high school math uh, yeah, so environment? Yeah, so I know the high school math classes you're, you, you're in. Um, and... So it's, it's tricky because the thing with an intervention is you're still pulling off certain kids and giving them the idea that they're low achieving. I mean, the thing I would start with is taking away those labels and telling them, and that's very hard in the school system that you're uh, in, I know. So um, these types of ways of working are good for all kids, and we know that in the school system that we know and love, that even kids who are very successful are actually not that happy or engaged in math. So it would be good for all of the kids. So um, I don't know. I have worries about going in and suggesting interventions for kids because really we need to pull those kids in with the other kids, not have them siphoned off in low-level classes where there are low expectations and they don't get to even get the ideas. That, you know, They don't get access to the ideas that the other kids have in the high classes either. So, um, but working with very traditional schools is a process and you have to be strategic about things that you can offer. Um, so I don't know, I'd have to think more about what you could take in and would be the best recommendation, but we can talk about that. I was uh, intrigued in your comment about the con videos, uh -huh. uh, partially because he does not say that, uh, he himself says that that the, the real key to learning is to use his, his background, like his homework, he does, yeah. and, and that you sh in, the, in the classroom mm -hmm. you should use the kind yeah. of instruct. Right. So, so one general question is, how do you decide on the right balance? I mean, mm -hmm. do you see any role for the, what I'll call the sort of procedural mm -hmm. teaching? And, and in the end, <clears throat> so what's the balance between the two? And my first impression here is that, especially looking at my daughter's uh, algebra textbook, um, that kids will learn deeper, they will learn less deeper. That is, I don't know how you could possibly get through a year of what is currently an Algebra right. One curriculum mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. doing this. I right. think that whatever you teach, they will learn in a much better way. Yeah. But they I don't know you, that less. you could get past Chapter Three. So, right. how do you strike mm -hmm. that? How do you mm -hmm. strike that balance? And yeah. is that yeah, yeah. is that true? So on the balance of teaching kids formal methods and uh, having them explore, uh, they do need to learn formal methods. And our principle in, other, in the work we do with teachers is really that we give kids 
the opportunity to uh, explore and use their own intuition around ideas before they're taught the methods because if you engage them in an activity and they're intrigued and they're interested and they don't know how to move forward, that's a really good time to teach them a method. If you teach them the method at the beginning and then say, go, ahead, go away and practice that, you know, there's no engagement in that. So um, it's partly about when you introduce it. You're right that they co kids cover a lot less in these more in-depth ways of working, but I would say that whenever we've studied teachers who have uh, worked in these ways, who have covered less, their kids have still done better even on standardized tests because even though they don't get through all the curriculum, that what they do get through, they understand. Um, whereas when kids get cover everything in the curriculum, they often come away understanding very little of it. So um, you do need to pay attention to coverage. And of course, we didn't have to pay attention to coverage in our five-week summer school. We, there are ways of taking that whole Algebra 1 curriculum and teaching it through more of a visual and problem-solving approach. And um, maybe you wouldn't get completely, you wouldn't get as far through the content, but I still think kids would do a lot better. And um, we know that from different teachers who work in those ways. The really effective teachers I've studied in public schools have got together at the start of the year and said, okay, what are the big ideas in this curriculum? Um, and they've taught around those big ideas, and if they haven't covered all of the minutiae that are within those, they don't worry about it, and their kids are very successful. I mean, it would be nice if we had leadership from above, so those curriculum had those big ideas, and the Common Core has definitely more of that. Um, so teachers didn't have to do that. But I think the, the aiming to cover everything in an overly packed curriculum is part of the problem that we've had, unfortunately, for so long. Joe, thank you very much. My question touches on several previous questions. And I'm wondering, do you have a success story of where outside influences have worked with some elementary school teachers who tend to see the light, mm -hmm. but who are working in a system that is essentially traditional. Have you seen something where it got turned around? I have, I have. And what I've seen is the most amazing teacher of teachers who's called Ruth Parker. And she offers summer classes for teachers and uh, on math. And she, ha she takes elementary teachers for 10 days. And what she does in that 10 days is really remarkable, but it completely changes their perspective on math. And um, you need to do that. You need to re-engage teachers in the math that they are teaching. And she does that. And when I've been and studied the classes, the, t the teachers are, in are crying because it's like this huge, amazing experience for them that suddenly they understand math for the first time. And also they see it as this connected subject area that they'd previously seen as just lots of disconnected methods. So you can have programs like that. And those teachers go, went back into their schools and changed their teaching. But I think that's what it takes. It takes taking the teachers. Not, you can't just tell them stuff to do. and You really need to give them a whole different, just like those kids, because a lot of elementary teachers themselves are those uh, kids who've gone down the wrong path and are now teaching kids in that way. But I, so I think you have to re-engage them in math. You have to get them doing math again, doing it differently, um, seeing connections, and, and that is effective. That's the best I've seen. Ruth Parker, and she runs an organization called MEC, M-E-C, Mathematics Education Collaborative. They're in um, Oregon, I think. And 
she teaches 10-day classes. And, um, yeah, did I, yeah, I think I already mentioned I'm teaching a class for, uh, this is my advert, I'm teaching a class for teachers through Udacity, uh, which is one of the big MOOC companies, and it's going to be available at the end of May for the summer. So uh, there are teachers that we're, lots of districts are having their teachers do that course because we're going to, I don't know, it's a big puzzle for me that we're working on and how, how you engage teachers through this online. But we, they will watch these videos and we'll get them doing math 